Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. This next guest is an Emmy-winning composer. He's collaborated with Oscar-nominated film and TV maker Scott Frank, and over the last 15 years, they've worked on such projects including Netflix's The Queen's Gambit, and Netflix Western drama show Godless, for which he won a Primetime Emmy for his main title theme and a nomination for his score. And the composer is Carlos Rafael Rivera. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you as well. Um, out of curiosity, where are we uh, hearing you from? You're hearing me from my house in Miami, and I just realized my, my kids are having a Zoom class in the background. I'm not sure if you can hear anything in the background, but if you do, let me know. It's all good. Because uh, they're doing Zoom class. I think my son's doing PE right now. So it's going to be like, ah, 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 in the background, just like doing all these jumpy jacks <laughs> and stuff, and he gets all into it. He's 11, and my daughter's about 14, and she's taking Zoom in another room. It's just, it's so surreal with the pandemic scenario we have, you know what reality has become, you know? Wow, PE class over Zoom sounds pretty... Oh uh... my gosh, I didn't even want to get into it. Um, but I think it is... Uh, I'm glad, listen, it's 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 about a job market and, and PE teachers. I think about the, the reality of how hard it could be if they stop PE. And I think it's a good thing that they do or are doing it. And, you know, they're teaching them about things. It's just that, it, it's just a surreal time, man. That's the best way I can put it. It's so funny. I was just talking to someone about about the quality of education and how I remember in high school going to class, going to math class, mm-hmm. being confused as hell, and then going to YouTube, going to Khan Academy to kind of get the real explanation <laughs> on math. And I feel that way about music too. Like I feel like I've learned more from Jacob Collier videos than I did from school. It's a funny thing you mentioned them. Um, and in parentheses, by the way, in case you may have to edit or so, he's he really is one of the one of the savants. I think that's the only word I can use. There are people like him, like Andrew uh, uh, Wang as well. I'm not sure if you're oh, Huang, Huang, yes. sorry, yeah. Andrew Huang, and from Canada, and he is. Uh, the, they are to me folks that really are living on the edge of just genius because of the amount of uh, output they make, and of course, not only that, but but Jacob Collier's mind. Um, how he talks about uh, multi-layered harmony, like how improvising in a C major, uh, E major, and then you can resolve both those to F or whatever. And, or, you know, it's just, it's a different, it's a different, it, how he thinks about everything musical is really one of the things that, that are mind-blowing to me. And uh, And at the same time, I think that we're in a, God, this is a weird conversation to have because education is, is, is really kind of going through a renaissance 
And I actually think it's the best thing that could be happening. The fact that you can go to YouTube and you can Google anything you want and learn it really forces the uh, academic system, of which I'm a part of. I teach at the Frost School at the University of Miami and um, film scoring program, media writing production program. How, why, why would a student even care about going to any institution to learn if they can get it all on Google right? and or YouTube? I don't know if you've thought of that. I mean, I was just thinking about how I, I never went to a film scoring program. I was in like a pop music thing at NYU. Okay. But it's so cool to me that if you go on VI control, as much as, you know, sometimes it can be a toxic website, uh-huh. you can ask like Hans Zimmer a question and sometimes he'll pop in. In fact, he's on there a lot more often than I think people think. Yeah. Not only that, he's also on the perspective forum, perspectives forum right. on Facebook and he pops in. And I think the fact that so many composers have... Uh, become accessible through their uh, interest in social media as well uh, has changed the game. I remember a colleague of mine, Kerry Torgerson, a really good composer I went to school with. I, he was, you know, he started getting into, he got his first opportunities right out of his master's degree in composition. How did he get it? He wrote letters uh, to different composers, to Marco Beltrami, to Jerry Goldsmith at the time, to all of these folks. And no one responded. And he told them, listen, I'm having my senior recital. It'd be great to have you come and check my music out. And you just come and see me. And nobody responded. And he didn't know, but Marco Beltrami went to his recital. <laughs> That's amazing. And heard his music and then had reached out to him and said, hey, you know, that, you know the entrepreneurial uh, spirit is, has always been alive and well. And I think now it's just become much more accessible for people to kind of reach out to, to folks. And mm-hmm. um, I still, though, believe very much in the in the numbers game and in, in the fact that if it really comes from you, like if if you're interested in in really seeing things through, it's it's your persistence and your perseverance that will kind of give you up, grant you more opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you but because everyone is accessible, whether they choose to reply to you or not, really is not in your control. But what is in your control is putting your stuff out there. And what I've seen over the years is. If you put something out there and you really are earnest about it, uh, it doesn't necessarily come back linearly. It may come come from a different angle in a totally different way. I think opportunities come to you if you really, you know, put it out there to happen. I, I don't know if I'm making much sense. No, I, I think so. And I know a lot of composers who are putting out like their own records right now right. where there's not as much work going on. And I've heard of a couple people doing that and then that record, you know, a filmmaker friend heard it or passed it on to someone and then they get hired for the type of music that they actually want to do, which is kind of rare in a way right? for us. Like if I want to do an 80s rock score right now and I don't have too many credits in that world, right. then people are just going to say, oh, well, Matt, he's the guy who did and then insert last credit or biggest thing mm-hmm. that comes up on IMDb. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. Yeah, it, but it brings it coming back to the question of, you know, needing to go to school versus, you know, I, I feel like schools really, uh, you know, institutions of people that care and do, are, are, you know, are curating a lot of the processes and ideally are sharing their experiences from the field, if you will, in an applied what manner to students and showing them hopefully showing them all the mistakes they've made. That's certainly my approach. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, every mistake I've ever made is really the first thing that 
I, I tell them, listen, I hit this wall and this wall and this wall, and, and these are things that you may want to do to avoid them. doesn't mean that they're not going to hit it themselves or do whatever they want to do. Because when you're younger, you really feel like the world is yours, and why has it taken so long for it to work out for you? That's kind of like your MO, and, and that's everyone's at that age, right? Um, but I think um, life happens at you, you know, and, and either humbles you or, and, and or shows you a different way. I, I really believe in the fact that if you, if you really want something, it's a matter of just being really persistent. I, I think there are people that are Jacob Colliers in the world that have all the gifts that God could give or any deity that you believe in could give uh, to someone. And uh, but there are people who have none of that who are just as successful and can be if they really have the persistence and passion, which is really what what this takes, you know, uh, to to kind of get more opportunities and create opportunities for them to be successful in this, whatever term you want to assign to success, you know? Right. And yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to talk to you a bit more about like your USC experience at the Thornton School, just because. Right. You know, it's so funny that like every composer I see in LA, I'm like, oh, they're doing pretty well. Look it up. Oh yeah, USC, of course. <laughs> right, but USC, I didn't go there for a, for a film scoring program. As a matter of fact, I didn't get I didn't get admitted into it. Um, it this is a long time ago. I mean, we're talking about poof, 1997, back in my day <laughs> when you were negative 10 <laughs> or whatever. But um, but but the fact is, like, uh, I applied to USC. I applied to Manhattan School of Music, Yale School. San Francisco Conservatory and USC. And I only applied USC because I got a brochure. This was late. I got a brochure that had Jerry Goldsmith's picture on it. And uh, I was like, oh my God, like I couldn't believe, you know, he was part of that. But I had applied because I was studying classical music and I got my bachelor's in classical composition. So when I started applying, I applied in Manhattan School and Yale and the other places and Juilliard even. I didn't get into Juilliard or Yale. I, did, I got into the Manhattan School and I got into San Francisco Conservatory, and I got a notice from USC saying that I was late. And I wrote this very long, passionate letter saying, listen, um, I just, I know I'm late, but there's something that's calling me. In parentheses, my best friend lived in LA and was going to Cal Arts at the time. And I had never been to the city, but I, you know, I wrote, I, I didn't tell them that. I was just telling them, look, it really, I believe that I really need to be in the school. And a weird thing happened where they transferred me to, I saw the the letters that went back and forth on my transcript later on and years later, and it was they were saying no, we don't. He has no film ability, film music ability, no film music experience, which I didn't. And but his compositions are interesting. Maybe check them out in the in the classical composition program. And they did, and they said, well, it's all right. And I had won this thing called the BMI Student Composer Award, which helped, I think, them give me some sort of credibility. And then they go, well, let's see, let's, you know, whatever. And I got in with, to the master's degree with, you know, full paid. I had, I had to pay. And it wasn't until my second year that I got a TA ship, you know, which is a thing you aspire to when you're a student because you want to be able to not have to pay so much money. They're really expensive private, instru- private institutions. And, uh, right. But that's how it started. So I went there and then I didn't finish my master's because I got signed to a record label. And in a rock band, the Zoo Story, which we got signed to like in, back in 99. And after those three years of a VH1 behind the music that never was, if you will, I went back to studying and getting my, uh, finishing my master's degree, thanks to the teacher. I think he's a chair of the classical program now, um, a composition program. His name is Don Crockett. 
I kept, we stayed friends and I kept meeting him for breakfast occasionally. He's like, Carlos, have you ever considered finishing your master's degree? And I was like, nope. And he was like, well, maybe you should, you should try and just get your recital because all I was missing was a recital. And he, I did it. I got, got it together. And, he, and after I did the recital, he said, have you ever considered getting your doctoral in composition? I was like, nope. And then and, and it, came, it became that he really led me back to music, man. That, that was, and, and through that is when I was able to kind of mentor with Randy Newman that the USC had a mentorship program. But it was always in the classical side, not never did the film scoring program. And I know it's a fantastic one because I have even students who have gone through it now. And I know it's fantastic. I think it's interesting you were mentored by Randy and checked in another interview. You said that like, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, like an hour of like listening to my music. Like he actually invited you to sessions and right. kind of did act like that was a real mentorship, right? Yeah, man. It was so much more than I could have dreamt because I, you know, at the time when I was assigned, they had a thing called the mentorship program at USC and they had members of the board that would be you know, uh, assigned to students that would apply. And I applied, of course, and I asked for, I looked at all the names on the board. I was like, Randy Newman, as in the Randy Newman kind of thing. And I applied and and then I got an email from him saying, hey, I'm, I'm pleased to be paired with you and would love to uh, meet you, you know, if you want to come to my place. I was like, what? Like I could, I showed, I started crying. I showed it to my wife, you know, I was like, what? check this out. And she's like, what? And I'd been going through this like whole, uh, Nilsson sings Newman phase, like all the early Randy Newman records. I mean, I I just had been a massive Randy Newman fan for years, and and then the opportunity came to go to his house, and I went there thinking it was going to be, hey, you're a good half Cuban kid. Look at you. Anyways, I got to back go back to being me, Randy Newman, and I and 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 it was totally the opposite. You know, he really listened to some music I had written and some recordings I had, some composition, some orchestral stuff. And then he started showing me stuff that he liked of other composers. And it was like two or three hours later, you know, and I was like, he hasn't kicked me out. What? What's, wow. And then I went home and then he called me like a month later. You want to come to the session? I was like, sure. And oh my God, the nerves. I don't know the first time you go through those sessions and you've, you've been working as well. So, you know, kind of like that, that experience where you get that first call or that first opportunity where you have to do something and, and you don't know how to be in the room, how to even exist in the environment, you know, and it was like a princess and the frog. And I and I was just sitting there watching him just he really was the, the king of that room and and an unassuming king, if that makes any sense. He just everybody revered him as he deservedly uh, has to be or should be. Uh, but but then I noticed something which was great. And the best education, I think, and I, I think I've said this before, but it's true. It's like I noticed a, a pecking order. I realized how the role of the composer truly and the place it belongs in because both directors of that film were there in the room. And I noticed they were like, um, oh, but there's a thing we got to change. We don't really like this. And in my mind, what was playing was that Randy Newman would say, well, this is what it is and I'm Randy Newman, so I hope you enjoy it. And I, I had no idea it was going to be like, no, okay, sure, let's change it. Let me, let me talk. Let me go and talk to the guys real quick, and let's let's figure this out. And uh, and I was like, why is he saying that? He's Randy Newman. He shouldn't change anything. He's awesome, you know. Like as a fan would think. But the truth is, as you know, uh, composers are working for the directors. They're working in service of the vision of 
the people who are a either paying for it or a b in charge and or both depending on on what's going on and and your only your only job is to support that and and Randy Newman I saw him in service of the story of the film and that was one of the great lessons I learned that you know ego it does not belong in the room and in any of these scenarios you're just in, you're at the service of the story right i feel like that's like the ultimate thing that we're hammered like that's hammered into us but and we can easily say right like story is king or story is, mm-hmm. yeah everything should serve the story but it's not till you actually see it or like digest it you know um right. I, I definitely i feel like i was saying it before i actually believed it <laughs> I, I think actually that's very true i think that um be, the reason why there's a disconnect is because we have a beautiful thing called the ego and uh and that gets in the way of everything and what you because you think when i even tell the students as well it's like no it's not it, you're not supposed to take it personally but every key rejection is personal every time you don't get an opportunity it's personal and it hurts to the core it's not like i've gotten better at not feeling what i've gotten better is at processing the rejection i've gotten better at the callus being weathered enough and and being able to stand to you know the fact that you know uh, comments of of that are very brutal and you realize and and the hardest thing is really to realize that your job what you do is not what defines you as a person like so the, so if i'm writing something it's not it's not what i'm writing uh, it's what i'm writing that's being critiqued it's not me and it's a really hard thing to cross over into the moment and i actually really felt like on the queen's gambit only in the last few uh, months of it i really felt nothing when a comment was coming at me and and i realized it's this piece okay that didn't work okay let me go back and make an adjustment and i really meant it it wasn't the kind of thing that usually happens where you're like oh let me go back and make an adjustment hang up the phone and you go oh my god this what am i going to do and and they don't like the music and you know that kind of inner dialogue which which never goes away but I really was able to objectify it, if that makes any sense. And it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. Right. Well, to be honest, I feel like it's only guitar player composers that feel such ego-driven. No, <laughs> no man. I think we're, we're... I think the keyboard players are better with rejection than us. <laughs> I, I, would, I, would, I don't know. I, I actually only know my experience, but I know that from other composers I've talked to that don't play guitar, you know, are... Um, I think it's the same thing. Uh, I th- I think what I do realize is that it's it's man. I, I we should have a drink over this. Okay, coffee's fine, but but it's one of those things that really kind of separate a lot of folks who come into it thinking like the way I thought Randy Newman should be in the room versus the way Randy Newman is in the room, and that's why he was able to work all those years is because he realized he's part of a much bigger whole, and mm. he just has to deliver on his side and the level of the other aspects of it force you to kind of raise your game, period. And you just have to be part of that team. You want to be part of a team. And if you're collaborating, it's like being married. And I've been fortunate to be with my better half for the last like 27 years now. And wow. and it's because of so many compromises you have to make where what you'd like to do isn't necessarily what you're going to do. And the same thing happens with cues that you write that you think are perfect and they're rejected. You cannot choose to a battle every time a cue gets rejected. You have to just listen and see and keep writing your way out of that situation until the director is happy with what you're making. 
Right. And a lot of times I feel like those, I, I feel like it's very rare that the first idea is always the best and that it does take some time to like, especially like when you're starting, like the first queue, like should probably go through a couple of revisions to get the, that right relationship going with the director and right. to set the tone for the entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. It takes, it takes a while. And I think so, you get lucky. You're always hoping for the lottery, but how many times have you won the lottery in life? Right. So it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's a very unoften thing. You just got to get used to the fact that revisions are part of the process and what you initially conceive is not going to make it uh, to the end. I was uh, one of the first things that we had to do in this show was chess games. I got, I got a couple of chess scenes and I had to score them and, and I wrote something I thought was really inspired. I thought I kind of nailed it. And what I realized that I, uh, looking back now, what I nailed was some of the colors that I was going to be using for the show, but the music was completely wrong. I was describing the wrong, and as a matter of fact, the director said, you're, Carlos, you're scoring the wrong movie. And that is a mm-hmm. deep statement. And, 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 and you can take it very personally if it's not a relationship that you've had for a long time. But because we've been working together for so long, you can say things like a friend would. You know, like, a, you know, there, there are certain people you can say, oh, does this shirt look fine on me? And if it's a really good friend, you can say, no, dude, wrong. And, be, and, and it won't be taken offensively because they're your friend, right? And I mean it in a different way than, than just like, what do you think of this shirt? I don't like it. They're like, why don't you like it? You know, that kind of thing. There's two versions of this relationship, right, that you have with people. And, and version A is where Scott gets to say something like that. And I don't take it like, oh, my God. You know, I take it like, okay, I get, I get it. I am scoring the wrong movie. I have to, what is the answer? No idea. I have no clue how I'm going to get out of this. But I got to write my way out of this. And it's just time. You just keep hitting the wall, you know, until you break through. Yeah, that was one of the. I feel like I really learned and felt that when Alan Myerson was telling me about a time, I think it was him and like Haytor and some others at Remote Control were doing a cue, and Alan's mixing it, and it was just like one of the best pieces of music he'd heard for that that film. And Hans walked in and said, "This is a, a great piece of music, but not for this movie." And they just walked out. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. But it, it's probably better that someone on your team and who's you know fighting to like help make you better comes in and says that to you before a director hears it too right but but at the same time no i agree 100 percent. i think the fact that you know that's why remote control is so successful as an enterprise you know um because they are all these people working in one location well up until march at least uh i don't even know if they're back there but i i actually interned uh in 98 for a summer at what was then called remote remote control no media ventures media ventures and and so i i was amazing because the people that were there at the time are people that are doing fantastically now and some names escape me uh but uh, i could say nathan I mean, that would have been powell right powell was there but i didn't i i would see powell but he wasn't working for anyone like harry gregson williams was working there but the guy he had he he was starting trevor rabin was there they were working on armageddon that was the summer they were all working on armageddon and there was uh it was hans zimmer's main room but then i'm trying i'm trying to remember now names and maybe you can help me remind since you seem to know so much of this but the composer for the transformers really nice guy oh jablonski oh my god steve jablonski super super cool guy ramin must have been there too though well i didn't see ramin i nathan barr was there 
and Nathan Barr. Amazing, Nate yeah. Barr was actually one one of Hans Zimmer's assistants, and um, who did a very kind thing for me. Him and just uh, I want to say Justin Burnett was also him and Nate were were working with Hans Zimmer. They were like you know his his assistants, and I had made a recording of a piece and I had it on cassette, right? Because that's how long ago this was. And they took my cassette and I was literally driving, you know, and depositing Hans Zimmer's checks or getting food for people. I was I was the intern guy, right? Running around the rooms. And I remember Steve because he was always very quiet, but he was be in the room next to uh, Harry Gregson Williams. He was his assistant. But anyways, they grabbed this cassette recording of this guitar piece I had written. Like a few hours later, they came back to like, hey, and it was, they made a CD. They pressed a CD for me. And I submitted that CD to like uh, one of the ASCAP composer competitions and I won. And I was like, guys, thank you so much. And I, I really will always treasure that because they were like super kind to me. And I was like the intern guy then. And, but it was an amazing thing to watch that kind of collaborative process. And mind you, at the same time, I was studying classical composition where it's all about the centered ego of the one person making all of these things. And mm -hmm. that really was important for me to watch then to see how things are, are done under pressure because it's always a team effort. Right. So out of curiosity, I mean, since we just talked about mentorship and all that too, are you mentoring anyone or like, what's, do you have a team? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Well, I don't, I, I've done some of the mentorship program for on, on perspectives. Like I signed up and I've had a, one or two people I've I've talked to uh, independently. They've reached out and I've said like, hey, send me your stuff. And I make some comments about it and we've talked throughout. But I teach all the time. So I'm, I'm considering myself like, you know, that's what I do as for my day job, if you will, you know. And mm -hmm. so I consider myself a mentor to all the students. And I, you know, I run the program so I oversee a lot of undergraduates and quite a few grads, and um, that's where I spend my time. Now, as far as a team, uh, the team is a weird thing because it came back from my first project with Scott. Frank was a walk among the tombstones, and I was assigned a music editor that came on board, and his name was Tom Kramer. And Tom was awesome. I like called him my diaper changer, basically, because I really knew nothing about, you know, how to score story. There was a lot of things that he was helping me do, setting up the sessions on logic. I mean, I really was a newbie at this. I had not had no previous experience. I'd done one small thing for a very cool dude called Robert Legato. Uh, I was a VFX guy. And that was how I learned how to score in a weird way. It's an amazing last name too. And Rob Legato. No, he's great. Man, look him up. He just won the Academy Award for uh, not just, but I think Lion King it was. And the VFX and he did Titanic and he won Academy Award for that. He did Hugo, won Academy Award for that. And uh, ran just the, the most randomest things, uh, how I got my first opportunities before Scott, that was through him and actually through his son, who was my guitar student. And I had no idea his dad did that. I only had met his mom, who used to drive him to the Pasadena Conservatory, where I would teach. Anyways, that's a long side story. But uh, getting to the team, I didn't realize what it, what it took. So Tom Kramer really helped me on A Walk Among the Tombstones. It was a crazy turnaround, but it was a rather short score, and it was only one film. And since we've been doing the miniseries now, it's like these like three movies. That's what it feels like uh, it, per limited series, because there's like seven hours of story it's like one long movie and that's certainly how scott sees it and and i see it the same way as far as arc and character development and all of these things and um so the team expanded 
uh, where I really needed help. And a, a guy called David Stahl was recommended by Tim Davies. And Dave Stahl was fantastic, and he kind of really helped me come through and get to the finish line for Godless. And this time around with Queen's Gambit, there was uh, David Stahl, I called him, and he helped me for a few months. But um, And then Ascaido, Ascaido is amazing, and she was also recommended by Tim Davies. And uh, she also helped. So the team is actually a rather small one, but uh, I make sure they get additional music credit as well because that's really important for me. Uh, to credit people for the work they do, because um, I'm 50, I'm a bit older, and and I like to um, I, I like to kind of like uh, I like to give credit where I think credit is due, um, in in the work I do. So it was it was David Stahl and Ascaido, and then of course Tom Kramer, music editor extraordinaire, who uh, helped also assemble all of the stuff. Then there was Jeremy Levy, who was the orchestrator. And Jeremy Levy, I'd worked with on Godless, and previously I'd worked with Tim Davies and on, on A Walk Among the Tombstones. And Tim Davies I knew from USC. We became buddies at USC. We, we used to, you know, go drinking or whatever. So, and he's a very, he was probably one of the most sounded musicians, in, I believe, alive today. I, I think Tim Davies is as good as it gets on so many levels. Anyway. For sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, you kind of touched a bit on Godless. Uh, should we talk a bit about it? Because it's coming up quite soon. Uh, well, the Queen's Gambit? Sorry, sorry, the Queen's Gambit. My bad. <laughs> no, it's okay, man. No, no, let's keep it. Let me stay quiet for a few seconds to keep it really awkward. All right. That's good. There we go. <laughs> no, that is uh, exactly the, uh, the what is it called? The podcast break. <laughs> That's where the, the ad goes. <laughs> Uh, we recorded Carlos Rafael Rivero. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, Rivero. Whoops. Oh, well, you know what? No, no. We we, we just created a new composer here. Yeah, I like uh, it. Uh, I like it. Recorded him at Surround. Yeah. Yeah. He also uh, wrote Godless. Rivero wrote a new show called Godless, too. Yeah. The Electric you know, actually, Boogaloo. So, Rivera, you know, we know we just interviewed him, but he had he had ghostwriters. Don't tell anyone, though. Oh, yeah. It's a secret. Oh, yeah, because he's, he's telling everybody. <laughs> He's the one out there telling well, everyone I think on it, IMDb. No, I honestly, that's a whole other conversation. But it's not. It is not. They're certainly not ghost writers. They're additional music composers, and and they right. get credited at the end of the, of the of the show, and deservedly so. You know, I I, I don't know. It's 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 to me. It's important. That's all. I think it's yeah. important to recognize people who are making helping make things happen. It's a team. It, it's it, it's it's a hard thing to perceive if you're not a film composer or a TV. Uh, or media composer, because, you know, one thinks for some reason this all must be done alone. But um, the truth is, like, it's like a contractor. When you're working with a sound designer, he's a sound design supervisor, and he has a team of people working on all these things, you know. I think very much the composer is supervising and making sure he's doing, and I really, most of the heavy lifting, I've been on this project for two years, you know, and working on all the things I can, but at some point the delivery becomes impossible to create, and that's why these teams. Some some composers choose to not credit, you know, um, and I think that's fine too. It, it, it's it's no judgment on it. I think, but I think that what what it is that they're doing, you know, um, it, you need a team in order to kind of deliver it, and I think that's fine. I think it's important to recognize the folks that are part of your journey. Very much so. Did you ever like do a lot of like additional music writing for anyone else? No, I never. School? I never did it. I never because uh, I never thought I was going to be able to do this. I I was a fan of this. I taught 
you know, film the history of film music at the Pasadena Conservatory as a fan. So I was like nerding out on Alex North and you name it, you know, and it, but, but I wasn't uh, uh, thinking I would be doing it or practicing it. And it wasn't until 2000 and maybe eight that I started doing it. And I did it for the Roblegato for a, for a project he had. And, and then it wasn't with Scott Frank until 2012. I was in my forties when I started getting these opportunities. But before that, I was just, you know, happy to kind of, share with students, you know, my love for it and my passion for film music because I it, it really affected me as a kid. I cried with E.T. when I when the when the bike took off. I was in the movie theater in Panama when the movie came out and when the bikes took off in the air, I just cried like I, I like I like and I was describing it to somebody else, but it feels like my tears just literally jumped out of my eyeballs. Like like the tear ducts were a muscle suddenly it's like you know and the same thing happened with Cinema Paradiso. You know, like the final scene. I saw that in my 20s. And it's only happened twice where I had literally a physical reaction of that power and magnitude. And it's always been film music, you know. It's been a part of my life and it's moved me the most and inspired me the most. And getting to do it at all is a dream. It, it truly is a dream come true, you know. So Right. Yeah, I mean, those moments are so powerful when story, visual and music come together. I mean, it happens in music videos too. But I mean, right. for me with films, it's like, I think Coco was like one of the most powerful ones for me, that song in there. Or um My kids love that. Yeah. But no, no, that that's what I'm saying. It 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 is and the the reason why I'm even interrupting you, sorry, is just because you you said it and I don't want it to be passed by. Um it's not the music alone. It's the music and the visual and the acting and the sound. All of these elements are what move you. I would not be crying if I just heard Ennio Morricone's music to the final scene of Cinema Paradiso. I cry because I've seen the story, I've been invested in the story, and that big reveal at the end, along with the music, are what make me love Ennio Morricone. Does that make sense? Hmm. And I, For sure. That's what moves us. It's, not, it's, a, it's, an, ag- it's an aggregate thing. It's, it's, the, it's the result of a team effort. And, and the more dialed in you are to that, the more the trust is between the members and the more collaborative you are, I think the better the product because um, you're, you're going, you're swinging for the fences or whatever the cheesy expression is, but you, you really are. And and when everyone's kind of at that level and, and feels like it, it, like I, for example, the one of the final scenes of the Queen's Gambit uh, arrived towards the end. And when I saw it, I hadn't written the music to it. I cried when I saw the scene. I, I didn't, I hadn't written any music and it was already working. The editing was there, the shots were there, the acting and the story development was there. And, and, and all I had to do was add music to it. And I was very fortunate that the music I had been planting throughout kind of added up to that moment and was able to pay it off. But I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's not a one-person show. None of this, you know, is. In what, in, look at all the credits when you, you know, sit through minutes and minutes of people. And they are all as important in making this experience real for you, you know? Yeah, for sure. And it's funny you mentioned that about having, like, a great scene to work to. Because sometimes I feel like, you know, there, there, there's times when an actor just didn't deliver something or, or you know, the edit got changed and now they have to make this scene feel sadder and then you have to kind of you know tease it with music huh. but when you have a scene that's already really good 
it's sometimes really hard to add that extra like two percent or that whatever like emotional capability for the scene or <laughs> you're, you're right you, you, i but i tell my students one thing is that everyone judges and you will judge so we are right. you're shown all these great things as a student right when you're in class you've shown the great sequences of film making and composers as desplat or williams or you know the people are really good at what they do right and then um you get your first student film and you see it and the acting sucks the cinematography is crap and the first thing you're going is like oh this isn't good no it's not guess what kick ass and make it great do, do mm-hmm. elevate the scene learn how to stop judging and work towards making this thing better because the next thing this director may do may be better and everybody's figuring it out even in any show that you get you'll you'll it's this weird thing that we do it's our inner judge it's we we watch something for the first time especially if there's no music to it sound isn't finished the vfx aren't there and you're like how is this going to work this is lame like it's just an inner dialogue you have right and you have this sort of but then but then you actually get to the point of like, I got to sh- shut up and score it, man. You're just one part of this thing. And and they'll figure it out. They're, they're going to edit. If the acting isn't so great, the editor will come in and do their job. Or not. And it's out of your hands. I, I tend to meet a lot of folks who are apologetic about the, the thing they're doing. And I and I don't think it's it's good. I don't think it's good energy to put out into the universe or the world or to be saying, yeah, I did this thing. It's not so good. I mean, you know, just own it. Dude, revel in the fact that you got a credit, the fact that you made it to the credits. How many people wish they even had that opportunity? Because the grass is always going to be greener. You're always going to want to do something better than the thing you're doing. It never goes. And this has nothing to do with film music. It has to do with life, you know? You're always going to want to be better than the thing you're doing. And I really, I really believe in that. I really think that it's about just shut up and work, man. Shut up and get your credits. Work. And I have three. I've been so blessed in one way. I really have. But I've been lucky that I've been, you know, supported by Scott. But it, I have improved as a composer. I can look back at the decisions I made on the first thing and the decisions I made on the second. And now I, the decisions I'm making now, and I hope this will never end, you know, the, the opportunity to mm-hmm. keep improving, you know. Right. Actually, yeah, just one last question here before we go into the last segment sure. for this podcast. But do you feel like it was harder to, or it's interesting because like I, I look at your only three credits, but they're all like seem great, right? But do you feel like it's harder to break in uh, when you're older than when you're younger? Yeah, I'm sure it is. I, I think uh, I he, what's funny is that life is not a template and everyone's story is so unique, you know, and... I've heard so many stories from some of the great composers of how things happen, a lot of happenstance and serendipity working itself in the in the way. But I do know this. If you're young, you know, you should train to be a great composer's assistant. I think I think when you're young, you should understand. And that's what I teach the students. I teach them um, specifically like, you know, understanding how to do tempo maps, how to sync to picture, how to bring in and make sure that the file, you know, set 48K, 24-bit, you know, all of these things. Is it 2997? Is it 25 frames per second? Just constantly work on developing that, understanding that if you have to do work to a temp track, you know, which many people have to do, how to get the tempo out of that so you can have something, a canvas upon which the composer or assistant can start working. That'll get you employed. It's, it, and I mean it truly because the the kind of skill set that composers need in assistance 
is not just this creative next John Williams genius. It really is technical. And the more on top of the technical aspects you are, the more opportunities you will present for yourself to maybe have the chance and have the happenstance and have that moment where, you know, somebody will come in and say, here, go. You have to deliver at that moment. That's your moment. That's you. That's nothing to do with anybody else. It's you. And if you don't deliver, it's not going to happen. So I, I, I'm a big fan of that. And I think that training yourself to be a great assistant kind of gives more opportunity. And then you go out and, and, and you got to be entrepreneurial. Just reach out to the folks through Facebook, through Twitter, through whatever it is that you can say, hey, you know, um, I got something to say and I'd love to, well, hey, I got something to say. Sounds like a bad song. We're about to break into you and I. But uh, That's a great, uh, yeah, first line of the verse. <laughs> I know. Or the chorus, which is actually even makes the song worse. Mm. Or even worse if it was in the bridge. Um, you know what? Let's start. Let's start that with the chorus, but start the chorus. At the yeah, yeah, yeah. The song, the song structure. Yeah, go right in. Start, yeah. yeah. Why bury the lead, folks? Let's go straight to the money maker. Don't bore us. Get to the Get, chorus. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> I like how old school you are, man. That's an old school term. Very, very cool. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's the Dave Grohl in me. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> back in my day. Back, back in my day. Well, I can actually say that now, dude. I'm like, you, 50. you've got. You've got the inflection down really, yeah. Yeah. It's really funny what you said. Because I am 50. <laughs> I am. You know, but it's true, man. I, uh, I've been around for a while, and, and I, I like it. I like being older. I do. I like, I like, I think also one thing that's maybe if there's any sort of, is like, you know, you, you got to have, you got to check your ego at the door, man. You got, you got, and when you're younger, it's much easier to be much more emotionally and dramatic uh, about your experiences, especially when you're getting rejected. But, but know that it's part of the deal. It's a numbers game. It's a keep showing up game. And uh, the more in check you can be with that, the better, I think the better off you'll be. Yeah, for sure. That's what I'm working on right now. <laughs> oh, you're working, man. That's awesome. Serious, yeah. man. I love, I love the, 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 I saw the credits. I was like, oh my God, dude, this guy's in it. And, oh, you know, thanks. for real and right out of college. And that's, that's, that's like one of the, the dream situations, you know, I mean, I, yeah. I'd like to have you over as a matter of fact, with, with my students, if you would in mind at some point to talk about career opportunities and, you know, how you got your, your first break, because yeah. that's what students really care about. I mean, I've been lucky to bring in really cool composers to the forums that we have in our, at the Frost School, but but they always are interested in people that are they can relate to career wise like where where and you're bridging that you're in that beautiful trip right now where it's just it's more credits and you're compiling credits and you're working your way up and it's good stuff it's not like unknown work you know what i mean so congrats on that you're actually getting a little teary eyed right here so thank you <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's true it's 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 a kudos man i mean before i got into any of this i was like well how do they get that job? They're, I could do better. You know, everybody's a backseat driver until all of a sudden I was on tombstones trying not to get replaced, you know. And all of a sudden, uh, I was like watching any credit. I was like, wow, they made it to the credits. They made it to the credits. I mean, one mutual friend uh, I should probably shout out then is Amos Newman, because oh. when I first moved to LA, that was like one of the first meetings I had. Really? WME with him. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And how wait, how does through... that even happen? How do you See, get to I meet know... Amos Newman? I have no idea. It's <laughs> just like, it's crazy. Wow. This whole industry. But it, it actually, I mean, I can tell you it was, it's a really funny story that I guess I haven't told on here yet, uh -huh. but 
it, my senior year at NYU, there's this thing, the Capstone uh, presentation. Oh, that's right. Capstone deal. Project. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. And they invite industry professionals, you know, to come listen to you pitch an idea or just talk about who you are and you, you have like an ask. So I, I went up and did it in front of faculty in December before the real thing later, uh, right before summer. And said, like, hey, my name is Matthew Wong. I'm a composer. Um, I just got hired to do music for this Netflix show called uh, Brainchild mm -hmm. that Pharrell Williams is executive producing. But I couldn't show anything because it was, like, so secret. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It was... Yeah, it was like a real show. Yeah. And then uh, like the visuals looked terrible because I couldn't show anything. And then like all these teachers were critiquing me like, Matt, like you didn't post a website. And someone else was like, oh, you have to have a website. Yeah, yeah, you have to have a website. You have to have a website. Like everyone chimes in, right? Yeah, of course. And then someone's like, Matt, like do you have an agent? Like you need an agent to be a composer. And someone's like, oh yeah, you got to have an agent. You got to have an agent. You got to have an agent. And like everyone like chimes in. <laughs> I was like kind of feeling bummed out after that. Like not knowing you know, like getting an agent of like 22 at the time or whatever would right. be like, you know, unthinkable in some ways. Yeah, right, of course. But then um, a teacher from the program came by and saw I was like kind of sulking a bit. It was like, yo, Matt, you're going to kill it. I mean, look, you can build a website, I trust, on your phone on the subway ride back home. Uh, in terms of the agent thing, though, I'd love to like, you know, make some intros for you. And one of them was Amos. And then Amos's assistant at the time recommended me for this uh, this movie, which was Centigrade for for IFC Midnight. So that really, um, and it was really fun. I'd also get these emails where like Ludwig would turn down projects, and his assistant knew I loved making like trap beats and things too. Uh -huh. So like, hey, like Ludwig turned this down. Like send send some music? Question mark. <laughs> wow, dude. Yeah, that is awesome. That but you know like that that's great. like nothing that anyone else can like rep especially now that Amos is I think. Uh, at Endeavor, right? He well, it's all part of the same thing. He moved to a different area, a content, um, right. which is exciting. And um, and then Bradley's now my agent, and he's like, I was lucky to have them kind of both be on the team, and um, and they're just great people. They've been great to me, yeah. And they've been very. Um, there was a time like after a walk among the tombstones happened, and it'd been like a couple of years. I had nothing, no work coming in or anything, and our contract expired, kind of thing. And I got the email with the renewal, and it was like, why are they, why are they, I was crying, like, dude, like, you have no idea, because I was like, why are they renewing my con, like, I've got, I'm bringing nothing to the table for them. And so I, I've, I'm really grateful that they've kind of put their faith in me so, so far, you know, and, um, and Amos is just a character, man, he's just an amazing cool dude and how i got him was because of randy newman amazing i, I that, that's literally it's his kid i had no idea by the way and i had i was in the walk among the tombstone scenario and i had passed remember I, I was writing all this music and the producer started liking it and then all of a sudden i got to the uh moment they're like well we're gonna do a deal with you but uh who's your agent i go let me call you back. And then I, <laughs> and so I called uh, Bruno Kuhn, who was an assistant with Randy. Uh, no, he was not his assistant. He was like his, you know, he was like his guy, his right hand man. Great guy, very talented musician. And uh, he's like, you should call Randy's kid. I go, what? Randy's kid's Amos. Who's Amos? Amos Newman? He goes, yeah. Wait, he's his kid? I was like, he's like, yeah. And I go, wait, I didn't even know, who, I didn't know agents. I didn't know any of that stuff. I really did not. And, uh, so so Randy calls me and he goes, like you're gonna get a call in a little bit, okay? All right. And then I get a call. And I, I go, hello. And then Amos said, um, a composer in need is a friend indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the coolest line, of course. I was like, he's gotta be Randy's kid, you know? And um 
and he just helped me make that first deal, and they and they stayed with me, and they've nice. stayed with me all these years. Again, very fortunate, very lucky, but you know, I don't know. It's it's one of those things that that the fact. What I would say is keep reaching out. I think networking is super important. If you have already had that meeting with Amos, keep reaching out and keep checking in. And I think it's okay to check in on holidays and check in on, you know, and just let them know you're alive and what you're working on. And, you know, because it's important for them to see your growth. They may never write back, but five years later in one of the check-ins, they may be interested in something that you've been doing and they'll, and they'll respond. It's, it's again, a matter of just showing up and making yourself known and maintaining the meetings past the meeting maintaining the relationships that's a big thing and i'm kind of talking to myself because i i screw up all the time i meet people and i'm like i don't write or i don't do it but it's something that really i've seen um definitely brings many many more opportunities to people for sure well if it's cool with you i think i'm going to go on to the last segment for this podcast a segment called tech talk where i list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it <laughs> I think this is going to be a short segment. Go ahead. Let's see. <laughs> I'm just well, da- Go ahead. <laughs> First one we have here is DAW. Yes, logic. Logic. It's been my it's what transferred me from the uh PC to the Mac. And um mm-hmm. when I had that first opportunity with Rob Legato, I called a friend of mine who was uh anyway, he's, he's a good musician and he was like, "Hey, I was like, I need something cuz I have to do this short film for this guy and I need. I don't know. I, I he told me I have to get a DAW, and uh, he goes, "You got to get Logic, man." So, and that was it. It was the beginning of that. Nice. Next, we have uh, Tempo Maps. <laughs> <laughs> what What else do you want to talk about? Now, I, it's Is the weirdest thing. There are tricks, though. Tempo Maps are great. Tempo Maps are are good in. It depends on what you're talking about. If you're copying a temp, which is a skill you have to learn. Um, it is there's fair. Fairly different things. Daw, Pro Tools seems to be really good at helping that, or the beat detective aspect of it. But um, but I think when you're making things um, on your own, and, and I tend to have like a couple ways to write a cue. And if I write a cue with, um, you know, the loop going, I'll basically, there's one of the ways I do it is I just play piano badly to the scene and I just loop it. If it's a 40 second cue, I will literally loop it like about 50 or 60 times. By time 25, I have anchor points in the queue. By time 37 in the loop, I start to have things I keep nailing and keep repeating. By the 50th, 60th time, I, I kind of have a queue. And what happens, right. though, is that that queue now needs to be caged in music, you know, because I have to think of the, if it's going to be, you know, going to the orchestra, then I can't just have it existing in space. And I have to kind of create, okay, what is the meter? What is, the, you know, and where does the tempo go? And then the tempo maps are born. And I've gotten better at that through the years. I certainly have been a slow learner with that, but but it's always, it's just taken me always a, a long time to make it just right. I'm, I'm obsessive when it comes down to hitting the exact frame, if not subframed for the emotional um, potential to be unlocked, if that makes any sense. Right. So I don't even know if I'm answering your question about tempo maps. For sure. I, I was a little curious if you use like the adapt project tempo and logic for that kind of stuff where you can like play it in and then automatically. Yeah, you know? I just I haven't I, I, I know it existed and I've tried it. And then I something about time always makes me, you know, like when a dog is confused and their head tilts to the right. Yeah, uh, that's that's been me with with that because I think I get it then I don't get it and I don't I'm not talking about adapt tempo project and logic I'm talking about temp, tempo and time in film 
And and I'm saying like I I always feel like why does this feel right? It's it that is as magical as as you know just the, anything else you know. Uh, how why is this tempo the correct tempo considering there's no temp to write to right um right. It, why is this the right tempo and why are they approving it why does this and why are why does everything line up if you pick the right tempo you can technically answer that question but it's not technical when you discover it you know so right. anyway cool well the next uh tech things here are a lot more fun so electric guitar <laughs> les paul uh, I've had it for a long time. I've been using the Les Paul exclusively. I've, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I've had it for a long time, and Les Paul is kind of like what I used to to go in. Cool. What about amp or plug-in? Plug-in every time. I'm, nice. I, I'm, Which one? I'm a big fan. No, just whatever the, uh, what is a guitar? Uh, what Guitar what? rig? Guitar rig 5, whatever, guitar rig, not 5, guitar rig, F, F, uh, there's like two of them and I use the second one because I think it's got more stuff I don't even know I just open it and I start finding I start just experimenting you know what I mean and bring yeah. things in the, you know it's so funny everyone uh, is confused by that I just read the manual about it because I was like what is the MFX mean Thank you. and I just found out it, it is. is it stands for MIDI uh-huh. so all it does is you can like send MIDI to it <laughs> Oh, okay. Wow. They're basically just, the same. <laughs> that's how ignorant I am. And it's and here's what's really hopefully, you know, telling of my ignorance is the fact that I when I was in a rock band and I was doing all this stuff before, I was never the guy who knew the kind of wood that made a guitar, what kind of pickup I was using. I just like things that sounded good. I kind of went and gravitated to things I could futz with enough to get to what I heard in my head kind of thing. So I had different amps, you know, uh you know, from, I mean, I really, I, I had just series of amps that I used pedal boards. I used line six pedals because that was the time of line six pedals um, mm-hmm. for the stuff. But I've never been one to kind of get caught up in it. And and one of the reasons why is, is I kind of te- always felt, this is going to be a weird side story, but, but the fact I went to this guitar, classical guitar thing uh, years ago, and I was a guitar uh, attending this thing guitarist you know fan of classical guitar and i met this guy who was like listen i've discovered the best way to get the best tone out of your classical guitar you file your nails this way let me show you how to file your fingernails and then he spent like 10 minutes showing me that the index finger of the right hand you could file on it you start nailing a little bit and then the other one and you have to do it at an angle just right so you get the combination of flesh and nail and then he played and it sucked so what's the use of all of this knowledge of technology if you can't do it? And doing right. is all I've ever wanted to be good at, you know? And so all these other trappings have always been things that I've ca- ca- been catching up with consistently to get to uh, deliver things that get approved because certainly demos need to sound great now. Not good, but fantastic. Yeah. And that, I've gotten good at them. Um, but... But certainly not because I needed to have all the gear. I've always just sort of iteratively been purchasing and, and gaining and gr- growing my studio. You know, mm-hmm. it's funny because I had a similar thing as a, a a wannabe classical guitar player at thirteen, where I think it was Jason View and I sat down and he was like showing me he got these ping pong balls and he would cut them up. Uh-huh. Is that common? And yes, you like, yeah, you absolutely. Cut the ping pong ball yeah, yeah. And you glue so, it to your nail, right? Nail replacement. <laughs> I hung out with Jason Vio once a couple of times. He's really, t- and he's a big fan of Queen, in case you didn't know. 
Did not know that. Big, big, <laughs> big fan of Queen, like crazy fan of Queen. And uh, very nice guy. Very talented, man. Really good player. Um, yeah. But yeah, on that topic, though, I feel like I was that kid tweaking like my pickups and guitars or like, you know, trying different guitar pal configurations and then taking it to film music and like, you know, mock-ups. Like I would try to like save money when I was in college and buy like, you know, these like $15 like boutique like string things. <laughs> and then it would always like, like they'd be good at like one thing and I just couldn't afford like the Spitfire or like orchestral tool stuff at the time. But then later you realize like I probably spent like, you know, $2,000 on like these $15 random plugins they have so many of them but then like if i just bought like the one five hundred dollar spitfire chamber strings or something you know it could have saved some time maybe yeah and well but that but but i think i think um it's an important thing to always be thinking about because you can get lost in the gear of saving your life you know you can always thinking mm -hmm. that that's what's gonna make me that once i get that piece of gear now i'm gonna be good and it, no you just gotta work you gotta write write your way and then where the gear will aid in that, but it's not the other way around, I think. Mm. That's so true. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just wanted to see if you want to talk about any of the new stuff coming up for you. Well, I mean, uh, I think right now all that it is, I mean, after a two-year gig, it's been like I stopped in early August and it's been the most needed and appreciated break. Um, I've only in the last few weeks kind of come back around to to thinking about the show and, and the music and one of the biggest projects after this project over the last month was putting the soundtrack together because mm -hmm. I wanted it, I wanted it to feel like it's a weird time because like it's like thirty eight tracks that are coming out in this thing. Uh, I think it's, and but I feel like for the for the music nerds, the people like myself who love you know to listen to soundtracks, I want to provide I wanted to curate and provide a story experience that could be done orally, right? Not just visually. And in some cases, I connected cues, I, you know, recut, reassembled for things to make sense, just for as a listener's perspective, instead of just a cue as it appears on the show. And I had so much fun doing that, because it's like a dream. And during Godless, when Godless came out, the soundtrack didn't come out along with it. And it was like six months later. And, um... And this time Netflix was behind saying, Hey, let's 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 put it out at the same time. I was like, Oh my god, I get to put the soundtrack out. You know? So right. I'm like I'm super excited about this, you know, coming out and and for people to hear all this work and hopefully, you know, they'll they'll hear how how all these elements are leading towards the main title. They're they're from it. You know, they're a lot of the musical elements are, are based on the main title, but they are um you know, they, they kind of add up to it as well. And, and hopefully some of those things are, are going to be apparent to like people like myself who always fall in love with that process of, of filmmaking. For sure. Well, I'm so excited to check out the show. Uh, <laughs> I listened to a lot of the Godless score and was just blown away. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I, and I hope you do enjoy it. I mean, there's a lot to nerd out on. And if you do, if you do listen and have any questions, always feel free to call and not for a podcast, just to talk. Cause I'm a, I'm, I love talking about this crap. I really do. And uh, I live Amazing. for it, you know, and, uh, and any of this stuff, just having the opportunity to talk to you and, and, and be able to share this stuff. It's, it's more than, 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 you know, for sure. Well, Carlos, pleasure having you on the podcast. Same here, man. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. 
The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.